about that today. We're talking about Jesus' habit of going to the synagogue. We're talking about worship in the temple. A lot of our, uh, our daily devotionals over the course of the coming week are going to be talking specifically about worship, what worship is, how we worship, and all of those things. Uh, but today I want to talk about the church. Last week we talked about Jesus' habit or custom of prayer. We didn't use this verse, but it summarizes it really well. Luke chapter 22, verse 39. Um, all the key verses, I think we can throw those up on the screen right now for a minute, Zach, if you don't mind. And I'll give you a chance to write those down in your notes as well. We'll leave them up there. But as I'm kind of working through the introduction, you can write those down. Luke 22:39 refers to last week. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. So this is at the end of Jesus' life, and that phrase, as usual, is also translated, as was his custom. Jesus went out, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. It happened so much, so regularly in Jesus' lives, that the people observing Jesus' ministry called it his custom. This was his custom to pray, and we spent a lot of time last week looking at how Jesus had the custom of praying. Well, today we're going to be looking at how Jesus had the custom of going to the synagogue. In fact, of, of the other habits or customs of Jesus, this one is mentioned the most. So we're going to look at that today. But before we do, I want you to know a little bit about my upbringing you, you, may, you may know this, I've kind of talked about this a lot, but I grew up in the church. I grew up as, uh, my dad was an associate pastor uh, in a church all my years growing up. He mostly did music, and so that was what I did for a long time. In my first uh, 14 years as a, as a pastor, I was a worship pastor, music pastor, so spent a lot of time doing music in church. Um, but we were, uh, how many... Uh, how many grew up in church? Feel free to not raise your hand if it's awkward for you. But yeah, so if you grew up in church, this might sound familiar, right? So you went to church every Sunday morning and Sunday evening. And your Sunday probably looked something like this. Sunday school and then Sunday morning worship service. We had choir practice right before the evening service and then we had the evening worship service. So essentially all day Sunday was dedicated to church. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Is that kind of what, what your Sunday was like? Um, we had Wednesday evenings, which when I was growing up, we spent those at youth group, but the adults had the Wednesday evening Bible study and prayer service. It was a combination at our church, half prayer, half Bible study. Um, and then we had, because I grew up in the Midwest in the Bible Belt in Ohio, we had spring and fall revivals. So we would have a week-long revival in the spring and a week-long revival in the fall where we would go to church every single night and a pastor would come and preach until he was blue in the face and spit all over everyone in the crowd until somebody came forward. And so that was kind of my my growing up experience, and that was actually where I got saved. I found Christ at one of those revivals, and I went forward and received Christ at the age of eight. So it's, it's been a great experience for me. I love the church. I loved growing up in the church. I, I love just being at the church all the time. I loved being there all day Sunday. And in fact, uh, I, if I could, I would have stayed there just at the church in the afternoons on Sunday. I just loved being there. I looked forward to Easter Sunday. This was what our Easter Sunday looked like. I didn't like for getting up at 4 o'clock on Easter Sunday morning. 
And when that happened to be on the time change weekend, we all liked it even less. But we would get up at 4 or 5 o'clock and then go to church, be there early for the sunrise service, the sunrise Sunday morning service, do the sunrise service, and then we'd have the pancake breakfast because we were just finishing up Lent and everyone had been fasting. We never fasted because we weren't that religious or holy. And so we, uh, we weren't, but we still enjoyed the pancakes. And so we had the pancake breakfast. And all the churches from town would gather together at our church and our fellowship hall and eat pancakes and sausage on that Sunday morning. And I remember Perry, Perry Cisco was the guy's name. Nobody named Perry anymore. We need to bring that back. So we need some more Perrys, like Perry Como and Perry Cisco. But he had one of those, those pancake things where you push it and it comes out and he would make Mickey pancakes and give them to the kids. And, and so, so we would have the sunrise service and then we'd have the breakfast and then we'd have Sunday school and then we'd have our Easter morning worship service for Easter Sunday morning. And usually, a lot of the times, we would stay at church to get ready for the Sunday evening choir cantata. Maybe we'd go home for a quick Sunday meal and then come back, but we'd spend the afternoon getting all the, everything ready for the choir cantata that was that night, and then we'd sing the choir cantata, and we'd get home about 9 or 10 o'clock at night, completely exhausted, but loved it for every minute of it. I liked being at the church. I liked coming and being at the church when no one else was around and kind of exploring all the Sunday school rooms and, and looking at all the places when no one was there. I liked it when it was empty. A lot of people are creeped out in a dark church. Um, but I like being around when no one else is around. It's one of my favorite places to be still. I liked rolling under the pews during choir practice from the front of the church to the back of the church and back again. And I couldn't wait until I was old enough to be able to sing in the choir. I grew up in a different time for church. But I remember very clearly when things started to change in our church. One of the first clues was at a choir practice. And we were at a choir practice and I was, I was a teenager and my dad was asking for a commitment from the people in the choir to commit to being at choir practice on a weekly basis unless you were sick or out of town and he, you know, he, he gave you know, excused absences, and you could even have a couple of unexcused absences over the course of the year. But he just wanted people to commit to being at choir practice, and this unleashed a firestorm from the choir. We spent, we spent two or three or four weeks just having people argue Half of the choir in support of the commitment. Of course, the people who were committed to being there, everyone, were fine with the commitment. And then the others who didn't want to commit, who were also the uncommitted ones, arguing against the idea of being committed. That was one of the first changes and some of the first church drama I experienced in my life. Then I, I remember my brother, after they had moved away to a different town uh, away from the church. They were still driving about 45 minutes back to attend church in this town. But I remember hearing him say that, uh, that he was frustrated with the church because there was an expectation for him to be there every time the doors were open. And things just kind of slowly started to change. Somewhere along the way, being together for worship and fellowship became a burden instead of a blessing. 
I don't know why, I don't know how. I have my ideas, I have my thoughts and my theories, and if you'd like to know what those are, we can talk about them after the service. But being together for worship and fellowship, communion became a burden instead of a blessing. People stopped attending the evening services until eventually most churches have canceled them. I haven't been to an evening Sunday, a Sunday evening service in a long time. People stopped attending revivals. At first they shortened the revivals from a week-long revival to just a Friday, Saturday, Sunday revival, and now most churches have gotten rid of them altogether. Now where we live, and actually all across the country, the average regular church attender, you've heard me say this before, the average regular church attender attends church 1.4 times per month. 1.4 times per month is considered to be a regular church attender. We did the math actually for our church uh, about a year or so ago, and we discovered that the average regular attender at 6'8", attends 2.6 times per month. That's average regular attender. Of course, there are many that are above that, and below that, that is just an average. Now, I know it probably sounds like I'm kind of being nostalgic and, and talking about the good old days of church ministry, and what we just need is a good old-fashioned revival to kind of stir things back. I'm praying for, praying for revival, but not a revival like we had revivals growing up. I'm praying for God to actually revive the spirit of the church, not just the, uh, not just the ritual of the church. But if I can, if I can, uh, if I, see, I always, I write these sermons addressing them to our church, and it's inevitable that a bunch of our church can't be here on that Sunday. I'm not criticizing people for not being able to be here this Sunday. But I write these sermons, and a bunch of people can't be here, and then God bless you, we have visitors here this morning, and that's a wonderful thing. We're, we're glad you're here. So I hope you don't hear me as just being critical and uh, condemning. Um, but I, I just I want to share with you what I wrote because I believe God put it on me to share. And if it uh, strikes the wrong chord with you, I apologize. I'd love for you to talk to me about it after the service and express your concerns. But uh, this, is just, this is just what I experience as a pastor. And uh, so I just want to, I want to be candid for a moment. I might, I might complain and whine a little bit, but I'm human. So the, just, you know, take that into consideration. The onus today is put on the pastor of the church to do something worth the time of the people. This tends to be our approach to church. That the pastor needs to bring the heat, so to speak. Needs, needs, to, needs to preach, you know, every week needs to be a home run, and, and every week needs to be better than the week before, and we need to kind of keep up in things every week, and it's on the pastor to keep people coming back. A lot of the pressure that I feel is that uh, we have to be doing something notable enough to get people to make the choice to be here on Sundays. We, we, have to, we have to be doing something like, 
like, you know, for, for a lot of years when we were doing the seeker sensitive or the attractional model, it was doing something notable that, that, that you could feel, you would feel comfortable inviting somebody to come because it's going to be fun and it's going to be great. And we have to be doing something notable enough or, or a series that just really kind of talks about those things that everyone really wants to hear a sermon about and a good self-help series and whatever those things might be to be able to keep, keep people choosing to be here on a Sunday. And I've met with pastors all across our community on a regular basis, and I'm not the only one that feels that way. In fact, it's become such a common thing that there is now a, a colloquial phrase, a, a proverb that we all share and all know by heart that, uh, that, that says um, what, you, what you do to get them there is what you have to do to keep them there. So if we're talking about attracting people to our church and we use a certain vehicle or mechanism to attract someone to the church, what we do to keep them here or what we do to get them here is what we have to do to keep them here. We have to rally people behind a, a compelling mission and vision in the hopes that they sign on to our cause. Now this is some of the pressure that I feel, that I, that I have this responsibility you know, to, to create this compelling mission and vision that just that stirs everyone's hearts down to the core to the point that you can't say no to what God is calling us to do. And then the worst part of it for me is that when the glimmer and sparkle of that vision wears off, there are those who, ine who inevitably go and find a new church. People are all in until they're not. Sorry, I just have that written here in my notes, so don't take that personally. Now, I will say that there are times when you're not going to be here on a Sunday and it's acceptable. If you're sick, don't come to church. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. Especially if you're, if you're throwing up. You can just keep that to yourself. We don't need to share that. Um, that's not the kind of sharing that Jesus had in mind, I don't think. But um, you just, you know, if you're sick, uh, go ahead and stay home. We're out of town, you know, if you're reasonably out of town, we were on vacation, we, we weren't here at church while we were 2,000 miles away back in Ohio visiting family. A lot of times it's a work schedule that doesn't allow it. But really, I mean, I think we've come up with a lot of excuses for why we can't be at church well, I just, we just needed some family time. We needed, just needed some downtime. I was just, you know, just had a really, really hard week, and I just, I needed some me time. And I think that tells us all we need to know. The question I'm asking is, is it your custom to be in fellowship and community with the church? Is it your custom? Would, would people describe it as your custom? There was an elderly couple, the Murphys. I'm, I'm guessing this is a real story, but it is an illustration, a pastor's illustration. But an elder, elderly couple with the last name of the Murphys were accustomed to going to worship every Sunday. Their neighbor, Curtis, watched them like clockwork get into their car and drive down the street. One Sunday there came a heavy snowfall. 
He felt confident the Murphys would not venture out, but it wasn't long before he saw them slowly walking down the road to the nearby church building. It was at that moment that Curtis dressed and got the old couple just before they entered the building. He had to find out what was so important that they would go out on such a treacherous day. And after a time, Curtis was baptized into Christ. If people watched you, would they say it's your custom to going to church? Luke chapter 4, verse 16 is talking about Jesus. So this is Jesus' customs of, uh, custom of worship, of synagogue. He went to Nazareth. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. On the Sabbath, Jesus went into the synagogue, as was his custom. So it was certainly customary for Jesus to go to worship. Now, Jesus was so committed to worship in the synagogue that when he was traveling over, over the Sabbath, he would actually go to another synagogue. Luke chapter 2, verse 41 is going to begin just a quick overview of Jesus' experience in the synagogue and going to, going to worship. So every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for one whole day, and then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. This should sound familiar from our series on Luke we went through a while ago. When they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him, the boy, the 12-year-old Jesus, was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Jesus replied, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? From 12 years old, it was clear Jesus knew he needed to be in his father's house, in the temple worshiping. Matthew 12, 9, going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, not his synagogue where he was raised, but as he was out from the town and other places, he went into their synagogues. Mark 1, 21, they went to Capernaum, that's not his town, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. Mark chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, Jesus left there and went to his hometown, so even after he had been out ministering, when he came back to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples, so he had had enough of that ministry life to experience, he went out and he called his disciples and they started following him, they did miracles, he came back to his hometown. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. There are at least 10 times in the Gospels where it's mentioned that Jesus attends a synagogue. It's the only thing uh, that, that Jesus, it's the second most uh, popular thing that Jesus did besides his ministry itself. You've got, you got his ministry, prayer, the descriptions of, of his ministry, the descriptions of his prayer life, and him going to the synagogue are the most common themes. So given that the goal of the writers 
was to share what Jesus did, mentioning the synagogue attendance ten times must have been significant. Must have been significant that Jesus went to the synagogue on a regular basis because they had very limited space and limited words. So if you're filling out a scroll, it's not like we have today where you can just write and write and write like I do and just keep going and keep going. They had a scroll. They had to make sure everything that fit on that scroll was important. And so if you're going to take the time to include something in the scroll, it's worth being there. And this was one of those things. Ten times they mentioned it. In fact, it was such a regular part of it that, that it was, a, that was something Paul had actually adopted or probably had already had a, as a part of his life as a Pharisee. But in Acts chapter 17, verse 1 and 2, when Paul and his companions had passed through uh, Amphipolis or something, Amphipolop, Amphipolopolis, Amphipolis, Acidophilus, it just sounds like one of those Roman names. So, and Apollonia. I'm really getting the names well today. They came to Thessalonica, that one I know, where there was a Jewish synagogue, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, so for three weeks, he reasoned with them from the scriptures in the synagogue. It was Jesus' custom, it was Paul's custom, it was the custom of the early church. We read some of the descriptions of the early church. It was their custom to go to the temple on a regular basis. Some places talk about it happening, happening daily. It was their custom. How would people just describe our custom of worship? We talked about uh, last year about this time. Uh, the idea of blacking it out, making the decision in advance that you're going to be here no matter what, and then you just make it work out. So instead of treating our Sunday morning time as a, as a family, as a community of Christ, as, as this thing where we're going to weigh between options and see, is this, is, this, is this more fun than this other thing that's going to come up? We just decide in advance we're going to black it out. Nothing creeps in on this time. We make the decision in advance. Why? Because we live in a world where there are 10,000 options of something you could do. And I, when I preached this sermon last year about blacking it out, I, I did some research on Facebook. And for that morning in the area, in the Vancouver and Portland area, there were over 1,200 different things on Facebook events that you could go and choose to do on a Sunday morning. So there's a lot of choice for what we can do. And we live in the great Northwest, the Pacific Northwest, where an hour away is the beach and an hour away is the mountain. And there's all of this great material in between to explore. There are a lot of things we can do. But is it our custom to be committed to a community of Christ? Why? Why is this important? Well, our culture, our society, talks a little bit about the idea of being centered. Anyone heard that phrase, to be centered, be centered? I'm sure probably all of us have heard it at one point or another in our lives. 
they talk about the idea of being centered. And when they talk about the idea of being centered, they're talking about an internal center. It's something that's in you that you have to discover. And if, before you go and do something important, you have to stop and just get centered on, you know, just focusing all of the energy and all of your body and all the world around you and to just kind of get established in this center reference point of who you really are. That's kind of how they talk about it. And, uh, there might be actually some biblical validity to that, but we're not going to talk about that today. For the church, I think it's a little bit different. For Christians, it's different. Remember our, our big idea that the church is a, a, a covenantal community to be, to be committed to at great, great personal cost sometimes. A covenantal community to be committed to. But in our culture, we've reduced it to a contract where the church provides this service and I take this service from the church and as long as the church keeps providing this service for me, I am happy. But as soon as that contract is broken, then I am free to go. And even if that contract hasn't even necessarily been broken, I can find and come up with a way that it has been broken and I can go and find a different church. But this is not how God designed it. It's not a commodity that we consume. And that's how I think we tend to treat it in our society today. We gotta go to the church that gives us the worship that we want and the, and the sermon and the pastor that gives the best sermons and makes us feel good about ourselves and has all the right ministries for all the people in our family and does all the things that we think a church should be doing. And if we can find that church, well, then we'll be happy. And I actually think this stems to an idea that's going to be coming up later uh, in the week. Let me get to it. It's a quote by uh, Tolkien. And he said, in, uh, in one of the letters that he wrote, he said, We all long for Eden, and we are constantly glimpsing it. We all long for Eden, and we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature, at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most human, is still soaked with the sense of exile. We all long for Eden, and our whole nature is still soaked with the sense of exile. We, we long for what we, were, what we were originally designed and created for and, and God originally designed us to be in this tight-knit community, this covenantal community where we walked and talked with Him in the garden and we had relationship with one another and this incredibly intimate relational experience and that was how we were designed to, to live in Eden and then we rebelled and we did things our own way and we turned against God because we wanted our own things and our own Godhood essentially and ever since that time we have turned the relationship with God into a commodity instead of the covenant he designed it to be and now I fully believe that a lot of what happens in the church is this this longing for Eden. I'm just, just, just going to find that perfect church. Someday I'm going to arrive at that perfect church. And, and when, I, when I get there, everything will be like I know that it's always supposed to have been. The problem is you got there 
and that kind of all went away because you're not perfect and so your imperfection ruined the perfect church and so <clears throat> that's a pastor joke a lot of pastors make it and if you ever find a perfect church you can't go to it because you'll ruin it so um, <laughs> <laughs> this is not a perfect church. I am not a perfect person or a perfect pastor. Amen. Now, the Holy Spirit has come. But because we've turned church into a commodity, I think what has happened is this this kind of cornerstone, the central gravitational thing that God designed to be a part of how, how we live our lives throughout the week has been turned out, right? So, so, I mean, you think about how the earth works or how the sun works. You've got this core that makes it spin and that, that, you know, that, that gives it it's what's called gravity, right? So there's, there's something in the middle of the earth that is heavier that's at least what scientists tell us. No one's ever been to the middle of the earth to observe it because it's really hot down there, I think. And so, um, so but there's this really hot core in the earth that's the, that creates gravity, right? And, the, and we are all rotating around the sun, which has its own gravitational pull. This is how God created creation. And so all of creation is supposed to work in this way, where our lives revolve around something. The problem is in the garden, we tried to take God out of that position and put ourselves in there and step into the center and make everything revolve around us. And we've talked at length at how that doesn't work because we are not big enough to sustain our own gravitational pull. And so things start to unravel. And what we have done with the church is take God out of that central part where everything is supposed to revolve around him and his desire and his design for us as the church, and we put our own commodity-driven, consumeristic-driven tendencies in that spot, and we say, this is all about me and my preferences and my ideas, and now you got to make it all about me, and if you don't make it all about me, I'm going to go find the church that does. God wants to be right at the center of it all. God wants to be at the center of the church. Christ is the head of the church. He's the driving force of the church. That's what we teach here. That's what the Bible teaches. And God wants us as his bride, as his body, to be revolving around the core of Christ. Which means that for you as a part of the body, as 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 talks about, for you and the part that you play in the body, your job is not to come and try to make the whole thing revolve around you, which is what we do in the church today. Your job is to come and submit to God's design and desire for the community and the body of Christ and to take your part, to step into your role as the body of Christ. And then that whole thing, the whole bride of Christ, revolves around Christ as the central part. So if you want to be centered, if you want to live a truly centered life and, and know where your identity is and know the storyline that you're supposed to be living from and to, to know when the enemy is creeping with, with lies and deceit to get you off track, if you, if you feel like your life has just been in chaos and, and, and outside the norm and, and outside the bounds of what is normally expected for the human life, that's because we 
revolve around ourselves, and that's the antithesis of what God designed us for. For believers, for Christians, gathering together with your covenantal community is central to all of life. We see this because in the natural expression of the church that cropped up after Jesus ascended and sent the Holy Spirit, this is how they lived their lives. The natural way that the church existed for the first you know, 50, 100 years was in house churches living in community and relying and depending on one another. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23 starts to talk about how this idea that we are struggling with today started to creep into the church at that time. And he says, the author of Hebrews, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. All the more as you see the day approaching. This was written nearly 2,000 years ago, at least 1,900 years ago. All the more as you see the day approaching. The day is 2,000 years closer. All the more as you see the day approaching and yet we struggle to get people to show up more than 1.4 times a month. Second Peter. Chapter 2, verse 4 and 5 and 9 to 10. It says, as you come to him, the living stone, that's Christ, as you come to Christ, the living stone, capital S on stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, as you come to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Living stones. We've, we've talked about us being a living stone and that as we are assembled as the body of Christ, the Christian community of Christ here together, each of us is a stone in the temple that is the place where God's presence dwells in the form of the Holy Spirit. We are the body of Christ, but you are a chosen people, plural, a royal priesthood, not just a royal priest, but a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A nation isn't one person, it's a group of people, God's special possession. That, the reason that we are his priesthood, the reason that we are his temple, is so that we may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And one of the big lies, you might want to write this down, that, you, that we have believed and bought into in our culture today is that you can be a Christian by yourself. I can be a Christian on my own. You can't be a Christian in isolation. If this is the family that God has placed you in, you are here for a reason, not only for your own benefit, but also for the benefit of others. There are things about our lives that we cannot see for ourselves that God has put people around us to help us see so that he can shape us more into his image. There are things that you can see in the lives of others that in love and grace and truth, God puts you in their lives so that you can help them grow more into the likeness and the image of Christ. 
We are all the family of God and God has placed us in this family. We are not a group of individuals on separate journeys towards God. We are one body on the same journey. We are not a group of individuals on separate journeys. This is why we are doing what we call the journey guide. Because we together as the body of Christ are on a journey together. So while all the thoughts in here are, are things that I have written down and things that as I've prayed and read scripture over the course of the last 56 days, God has been teaching me and sharpening me and transforming me and changing me, this is a journey that we are on together. We're going on this journey as a family. It's not about me and, and me getting from this community something that's going to make me feel better about my relationship with God. It's about being the family. And as much as salvation is personal, which is how the Bible describes it, it also describes it as communal. It is not just something that we are saved for our own personal salvation, but also for the salvation of the community. Christ is the head. I, as the pastor of this church, am not the head of this church. Christ is the head of the church. I am simply responsible for following where Christ is leading our church. And I'll give you a hint. It's to become more like Christ. Now, real quick, because there are also uh, those who are here every Sunday... I'm not, I don't know, maybe, maybe no one in this room, but here every Sunday, but have the wrong motives for being here every Sunday. You can be here every Sunday, but have the wrong motives and still be disappointed. I think that God will eventually get to you if you're here every Sunday. I think, I think that the Spirit will work in your heart and your life if, if you're here every Sunday. I think it's hard to be in the presence of God and not be changed. And so... I think even if your motives are wrong, still be at church every week. But if you're coming to church only to get what you need for your own personal walk with the Lord, well, then you're doing it wrong. If you're coming here to get your worship your way and to be treated the way that you want to be treated, you're doing it wrong. That's Burger King and Dairy Queen, not the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. <laughs> so... If you're coming here because you like my sermons, you're definitely doing it wrong. Um, if you're coming here because you like how people make you feel, you're still doing it wrong. If you're coming here for what you get out of being here, you're doing it wrong. If you're coming here to get, you're doing it wrong. Because we don't come to get, we come to give. And it's only when we all come to give out of complete surrender that we get to experience the miracle of the community of Christ. Uh, Rylan and Kami last month did this great little illustration in, with the kids, and they were, they were talking about sharing. And um, I'm going to do my best to recap it here, but it was a really great illustration. They, they gave the kids a piece of candy, or they, the only way the kids could have a piece of candy is if they received it and gave it to someone else. But... Um, if, if they didn't decide to give it, they wouldn't get a piece of candy. Now, you could, you could get it and keep it for yourself, and then the other person would give it, and then that, that person would get two pieces of candy, and you would have none. And so that's kind of how it played out. First, 
first group, I think they gave it, gave it to the kids, and each kid kind of held on it to their own, and I don't remember what happened after that. Next time, one of the kids decided to give to the other, and so one kid ended up with two pieces of candy, and one ended up with none. Throughout the course of the morning, morning kids were starting to, to kind of get the idea, and so they were giving candy to one another, and then they did the illustration again at the very end, and, and they were given candy, and then the kids gave the candy to the other kids, and everyone got a piece of candy. Isn't that great? Because if we're not coming to give at church, and this has happened more times than I can recount, that people come to church to get, to get, to get, meet my needs, take care of me, I need, I want, I expect, I demand this. And then what happens is the people that come to give, give. And the people that come to get, get. And the people that come to give, pour out without ever being poured back into. And the people that come to get, get everything they want and never have to do the work for uh, following Jesus Christ on themselves. And they don't ever follow Jesus Christ. They end up walking away from the church and going off and doing their own thing. It doesn't work unless we're all here to give. Somewhere along the way, we made church about us and turned it into a commodity that we consume instead of a community to be covenantally committed to. We've made it contractual instead of covenantal. And when our needs stop getting met, we move on. You've probably seen this on Facebook. A random churchgoer said, I didn't really like worship today. Francis Chan responded, that's okay. We weren't worshiping you. As a worship pastor, I used to say when someone would, I didn't, I wasn't quite as wise as Francis Chan, but people would come up and say, I didn't really like the worship service today. And I said, that's okay because our worship services aren't designed for your enjoyment. They're designed to draw us together as one voice to the throne of God, to bow before him and worship him in complete surrender as we minister to the Lord. Our, our job as the, as the unified church, when the, when the band is up on stage, it is not the band singing to us or performing for us or singing a song to hopefully stir our emotions to a point where we feel like something happened inside us. Instead, it is almost as if Stefan or the, or the whole group on stage is, is a choir conductor and they are con conducting us, the choir, as we turn our focus and attention towards God Almighty and we sing out our worship and our ministry to Him as the Lord. So we don't design worship services to be enjoyed, we, we design worship services that we think will draw us together with one voice to worship and minister to God. And this is where we kind of get to the problem. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm having a hard time, uh, having a hard time being bold this morning because I don't want to offend But there are, there are some bad words in modern Christianity. Sin, surrender, commit, and submit. 
sin, now I have to remember them. Now, sin, surrender, submit, and commit. We don't like talking about sin anymore because that's offensive to talk about sin. Problem is, the reason sin is offensive to us is because we've so embraced sin and identified that sin as our own personal identity that that is who we are. And so when someone talks to us about sin, which is counter to God's design for our lives, we end up getting offended because we've embraced it too much. And what really needs to happen is we need to be offended that we are offended and we need to turn away from the sin and embrace the real design that God has for us. So, so sin is a dirty word. Surrender is a dirty word because we don't like the idea of surrendering to anyone that isn't ourselves. We don't like to submit to anyone that isn't ourselves. And so we've tried to erase that word out of, the, out of the New Testament and out of marriage vows and all of that. And we're not gonna get into that today, but that would be a fun conversation to have over lunch. Um, and so, and then commit, committing, commitment. We kind of like to go into things and test the water and see if it's gonna do what we hope it's gonna do instead of committing to it and letting God work. But if you look at the life of Jesus, he was sinless. Not in one instance or one moment did he embrace sin. If you look at the life of Jesus, he was completely surrendered to the Father at every moment. And even in the one moment of his life where you could argue that he was not surrendered to the will of the Father, he prayed, and at the end of it, he submitted to the will of the Father when, it knew, when he knew it was going to cost him greatly. And his life was entirely committed to the cause of being the kingdom of heaven, and his message was the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven has arrived. The kingdom of heaven is here. He was committed to that message, even when the lure was to come and be our king, and we will make you king. And they tried to make him king by force. And what did we learn this last week? That when they came with their own agenda to try to make Jesus king by force, he withdrew and snuck out to the mountainside to pray as was his custom because he was committed to the cause. Sinless, surrendered, submitted, and committed is who Jesus was. That was his identity. As long as we're our own ultimate authority, we surrender to no one. In fact, I feel like sometimes on Sunday mornings, the challenge is, just try to make me do something I don't want to do, Pastor. Try. Here's where we're going to end. We're going to talk more next week about worship, about church. I'm just trying to uh, centered church is Christ the center of our lives there are a thousand stories being told every single day we are constantly surrounded by stories 
There's a storyline that you're being sold from the, mo from the moments before you walk into church to the moments you walk out of church and every moment in between. There are storylines that are, that are, I've talked about before, at best ambivalent towards Christ and God and the kingdom, and at worst opposed to Christ and God and his kingdom and his mission. But none of these storylines lead us in the right direction. Every single one of these storylines leads us away from Christ. Every single one of these storylines has its own agenda in mind. And if all it takes is watching a single commercial and you can see a story that is trying to draw you into something so that you invest your hard-earned dollars into their mission for their product. There are a thousand stories that we are constantly being bombarded with. But there is one story that we were designed to embrace. This is God's story. God has a story for your life. God has a story for my life. God has a story for our covenantal community here at 6A Church. And it's one that is built on the foundation of surrender, submission, and commitment. And his story, for, the, for his story to have the chance to positively affect and change our lives, we have to move from being obsessed and revolving around our own ideas and our own preconceived notions about what we think church is supposed to be and let God be in the central place. This is what everything revolves around here at 6A Church. This is why we do everything that we do, is to make Christ the center of our lives. We want Christ to be the central focus of every moment, of every aspect of who we are as his followers. This is why we do Workplace, our online community, so that throughout the course of the week, you have a chance to not only see material that encourages you in your own personal walk with Christ, which is where most of us use it, and what I would love to see happen is us balance the scale to the other side, where we're actually encouraging one another as we walk together as the body of Christ, and together we carry the mantle of Christ into our community outside of Sunday mornings. This is why we are doing what we're calling the journey guide, so that we can have God's storylines start to be grooved into the, recent, the darkest parts of our brain and our mind and, and just start to wire them in deep and wire them in hard and start to turn out some of those, those stories that are wired in that shouldn't be there and start to get them out of the way as they're clogging things up and just to get the grooves of God's story deeply rooted in our brains. This is why we do rooted groups. This is why we have opportunities to serve so you can serve and be in community and fellowship with other believers who are on the same journey, going down the same path and connected by the same Savior, united in the same church. This is why we do everything we do when we do Bible reading plans together so that we can be reading God's word together and encouraging one another together and be aligning the story of God's life in our minds together as the same body of Christ. This is everything we do. This is the central focus of our church to make Christ the central focus of our lives. But if we don't do this, if we don't make Christ the center of everything, and if we don't make his church central in our lives, we'll never look like Christ. It's impossible. Think of two magnets, and this is where we'll finish today. Think of the magnetic pull of Christ and God and his kingdom. The original magnet, the original gravitational force, the original pull that everything was built around. And think of all of the stories in our secular society as magnets. 
Think of all of the stories of, of, you know, of all the media that you consume. Think of all the stories of all the, all the organizations that you support, all the things that kind of drive you on a day-in, day-out basis as magnets. Little magnets, little teeny tiny microscopic magnets compared to the true magnetic pull of Christ and God and His kingdom. But, but they're, all, they're all magnets. And, and what happens if you're not close enough to the magnet and you get close to another magnet? It pulls you further away, right? And so, so imagine here, right at the center of everything is Christ and his kingdom and the presence of his spirit and the living temple of the church as you're gathered together with 6A church and his body right here as you're gathered here this morning you're right close to the central core the central magnetic core of Christ and his kingdom and you probably feel as I do every time we're gathered together drawn deeper in and just pulled deeper in it's like I, I don't I feel like I'm already all the way in but I just want to go in a little bit further I want to go in a little bit deeper and you feel yourself pulled to it but then but then we walk out and we go through the rest of our week and, and we've got work and it kind of kind of pulls us this way but then after work we've got this activity and it kind of pulls us this way and, and then we've got these other activities and they kind of just spread out around our lives and we're just like this ping pong ball that just kind of we, we have just enough energy to get us to one thing to another thing to another thing and we're constantly drawn until throughout the course of the week we're completely pulled away from Christ and his kingdom and what we desperately need is to be pulled into it. And what I've learned, what I've discovered, as much as I would like to see some kind of meshing in my life between God's kingdom and Christ's kingdom and these things that I really like about this world, is that they're actually opposing forces. And you know, like when you have two magnets and you get that opposite end together or similar end, I don't ever know which one it was, but like you start try to push them together as hard as you try and as hard as you work to get those two magnets to come together they never do because they're opposing forces the kingdom and the secular world we live in are opposing forces we cannot bring them together now what we can do what we can do, and this is great, what we can do is we can be so magnetically charged by, by the kingdom. You know, you know, every magnet's got two sides to it, right? The positive and the negative. And you know, so you can, be so you can be so magnetically drawn into the kingdom, so magnetically charged. And, you know, magnets are some of how we get electricity. It kind of creates power and how the world works. And a lot of what we're getting right now is magnets that are spinning around copper or copper spinning around magnets one way or the other. And so, so we, it's like literally it's a part of the energy source. And so, so you can be like this copper that's spinning around this magnet, right? And, and this is creating electricity it is creating the power of God in your life and, and as you are charged up by God you can go out with the magnetic force of Christ and the kingdom of God and, and, and you, can, you can draw people who God designed and made them in his image with an eternal purpose in mind that, that, that looked like him and becoming more like him. And what can happen is that, and this is how God has chosen to do it, this is his entire design, is that through your life being magnetically charged and drawn into the magnet of the kingdom of God, then through your life, 
the magnet pulls them. And your magnet pulls the people in your neighborhood, and your magnet pulls the people at work, and your magnet pulls the family members that are around you that are lost and desperately need Christ. And, and through your life, Christ will draw people into the kingdom. But you see where the problem, where the breakdown is in the church today, if Christ isn't at the center of it, and if the reason for coming to church and gathering together as a body isn't Christ, there is no magnetic center to draw us in and empower the draw through our lives. Is it your custom to worship God and be drawn into his family deeper and deeper every week? How have we personally been treating church as a community or a commodity? Let's stand together. Now that you've all been blessed and encouraged, you should feel blessed because there's three pages of notes I didn't go over today. So, um, <laughs> I do want to pray a prayer of blessing for us as we spend a few minutes in worship at the end. So desperately want us to be this kind of church. I want us to be the kind of church that surrenders in worship that there is no area of off limits in our life, that everything is available for God and He can say and do anything He wants to say. So as we move into this moment of worship, just invite you to surrender, to surrender and just, just let God move in you as He will.